a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by great sponsors like the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I so appreciate John and his wife, Heather, and you will appreciate everything they can do for you when it comes to securing a home mortgage or perhaps refinancing your own or just getting pre-qualified so you can go house shopping. Sounds like fun, right? Go to staplesmortgage.com. Again, staplesmortgage.com. And be sure to tell them that uh, when you get in touch with them, you're talking to them because their message reached your ears via The Brian Hyde Show. So I know we spend a ton of time talking about COVID-19. You know, I, I have this hunch, call me weird, but I have this hunch that it's it's going to be one of the defining factors of 2020. I should probably knock on wood, right? Because that's exactly the kind of talk that would get, I don't know, the Yellowstone super volcano to erupt or something like that. Nonetheless, we're going to spend a little bit of time discussing this today. And there's something I want to bring to mind, uh, Tom Woods actually sent an email out to his listeners and his readers a couple of days ago. And he asks the question, and I don't know if you remember this from just a few weeks back, the Sunbelt Spike. Do you remember this? Hospitalizations in Florida, Georgia, Texas, and even California and, and Arizona. Proof that we didn't lock down enough and we didn't lock down hard enough. Oh man, we should have done it sooner and we should have made everybody stay home and, you know, you just weren't obedient enough. But do you know what the numbers are like right now? You don't hear the media talking about this. That's a story in and of itself. But the hospitalizations in those states throughout the Sun Belt are down 65.7% since their peak. So you've got uh, about 108 million people living in those states, of which a grand total of 10,828 are currently hospitalized with covid and there's a chart that he includes in this email that, uh, that shows you exactly what it looks like. Now, here's the interesting thing. A couple of days ago, Florida reported 34 deaths, but even that exaggerates the situation. Because when they reported those deaths a couple of days ago, that wasn't the day those deaths occurred. That's just when they were reported. So well, how did those uh, how did those thirty four deaths uh, line out? He gives you the dates, starting from September thirteenth, going all the way back to uh, to June twentieth, and you're talking maybe one death per day. I think there was there was one day that had five, two days that had five: September seventh and uh, September fourth. Now this re- this result was reached without hard lockdowns. Yeah, California was locked down, but in light of those results in these other states, that was pointless. And Tom Wood says, meanwhile, which two countries in the world have suffered the least economically? That would be Russia and China. Now he says it would be funny if it weren't so destructive, but the very people who see Russian threats to America around every corner just got played in the most devastating and embarrassing way. 
He says the hospital system anywhere in America is nowhere near being overrun. Fears that it would be were behind why we were urged to, remember, flatten the curve. Well, that curve has been flattened. And hospitals are fine. And yet the lockdown, reopening, voodoo, pseudoscience continues. Tom Wood says at this point, the White House has got to coordinate rational, fact-based messaging about the virus. He says there are plenty of highly intelligent people who've been doing excellent work out there and who can easily parry and mock the panic narrative being peddled in virtually every outlet you can think of. And I like his idea here. He says you could even package it expressively as an antidote to fake news. For example, when the media tries to panic you about the cases, here's what you should know, and so on. Tom Wood says doctors with unimpeachable credentials should be placed front and center. And he says we hope they'd be willing to take the slings and arrows for the sake of fighting for what's right, since the best doctors actually understand all the wreckage that these restrictions are causing. Show a bunch of charts with the state county names withheld or country names withheld depicting places with different timings and different degrees of lockdowns and reopenings and then challenge reporters you tell me which chart represents the hard lockdowns and which don't you might want to put a tarp down first because most of their brains are going to explode as they try to do this but he says for the sake of humanity itself hammer away at this take every opportunity to line up aggrieved Americans against the people doing this to them just like the kids at that massive rally in Connecticut protesting their state's decision to cancel the high school football season. Let us play, the kids chanted. And his message to those kids is, hey, never forget who did this to you. Now, I want to take this one step further. I found this incredible article that uh, this, if you wanted to create your very own pandemic, you know, for fun and profit, how exactly would you go about that? A writer by the name of Nils Nilsson has done a marvelous job here. 12 Steps to Create Your Own Pandemic or How to Turn a Harmless Virus into Boundless Profits for You and Your Friends. Now he starts by saying, imagine you had the resources and influence sufficient to create a global pandemic. What would you do? What would you need to do? How would you get started? and how best to turn it to your advantage and boost your profits. Well, he says, we have the answers right here. A simple 12-step plan. Number one, find some vague criteria for what constitutes the symptoms you want people to look for. Anything subjective that a lot of people can identify with is ideal. Let us take memory problems and or confusion, plus a few common ones from the COVID list. So, tiredness, aches and pains are common and subjective enough. Remember, for COVID-19, the symptoms are fever, dry cough, tiredness, less common symptoms, aches and pains, sore throat, diarrhea, loss of taste or smell, a rash or discoloration of fingers or toes. Now, Nils Nilsson says it would be a good idea to take something that is very common in old people so we can use death from old age as proof of the the lethality of the new virus. Secondly, he says we would need something biological to test. Any RNA sequence would do as long as it's not present in the whole population. See, if it were, someone might claim herd immunity very quickly. 
Actually, it could be an RNA sequence that does not really exist in humans, but something that could exist as contamination in labs like dust or water. That would be enough for an RT-QPCR test to pick up a false positive. Many RT-PCRs have false positive rates of 3 to 5%, and that would be plenty to create a scare. Now, he says when it comes to COVID, the false positive rate is impossible to know for sure, since we don't have a gold standard to check against. But for many other similar tests, the average false positive rate is over 3%, and different labs are testing for different sequences. He says we can count on overstressed labs to be more prone to contamination than labs taking part in research, knowing they will be checked for accuracy. The ones that gave over 3% false positives. Maybe the error rate for the average stressed lab could be as high as 8%. BMJ counts 5% as a reasonable estimate. And basically he's saying with 8%, we, could ha- we would have all positive tests in the U.S. explained by false positives. Which brings us to number three in our 12-step program. Now we're all set to go. We just have to claim that we've discovered a new cluster of symptoms and that it's related to a new RNA sequence. It starts with memory loss and confusion. In other words, this is a neurotoxic virus, and it leads to death in all the ways old people can die. By strokes, heart attacks, pneumonia, kidney failure, sepsis, organ failure, dehydration. Now, it doesn't matter if the patient was close to death's door anyway because of existing problems. We can always claim that without our new virus, they would not have died. And who would counter that? Who could counter that? Just like COVID, people die from all kinds of disorders that they already had before they got the COVID test. Okay, so we're three steps into this 12-step program of how to create your own pandemic. Now, this is just a hypothetical pandemic that Nils Nilsson is talking about, but are you starting to see the pattern for how things could be manipulated? Now, I don't know. Maybe we're heading into to, to conspiracy territory. I, I don't know. Grab your tinfoil hat, snug it down nice and tight. We'll pick up with the other eight steps, just the other side of these commercial messages. I think it's a fascinating exercise in the sense that uh, a lot of this sounds hauntingly familiar. As in, that's plausible. (laughs) That sounds a lot like what's been going on. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are back. So I'm sharing with you this article by Nils Nilsson. This is published on offguardian.org. 12 Steps to Create Your Own Pandemic. Why would you want to do that? Well, I don't know, for fun and profit. Maybe a chance to consolidate power. It's not like anybody would really want to do that, right? Right? Okay, so we're three steps in. And, and by the way, you can check out the show notes if you want to If you want to look at this and share it with your friends. This is really thought-provoking. I, I have just shared it on social media, and I'm curious to see how this goes over. I mean, this this maybe there's somebody will step up and say, look, let me show you where he's wrong, and I'm okay with that. Show me. 
but a lot of this is making sense. Okay, step number four. By some miracle, we have already discovered exactly the virus that is responsible among the millions of different viruses that exist in any cubic centimeter of air. So we already have an RT-PCR test ready to go. This makes us look like very competent researchers. Now, of course, we've bought stock in the major testing labs ahead of time. He says we bought stocks in the biggest vaccine manufacturers also, of course, because that will be the biggest moneymaker, finally, hopefully, for years, since it will be difficult to get antibodies to something that doesn't really exist. Number five, he says, so now we just have to spread the news that a new deadly pandemic is spreading all over the world, and every country has to start testing. We can count on the 5% hypochondriacs in the general population to come forth to be tested first. And it will always take some time for each country to get started ramping up their testing. So the graphs are guaranteed to look exponential in the beginning. Number six, all you need now is for people to bring their old and confused elderly in for testing. And with 5% false positives, we will soon have most hospital beds filled with old, sick, confused patients. We can count on doctors to treat them aggressively. Many of these old people will be on a cocktail of drugs already, so adding a few more drugs as heroic treatment will be sure to push them over the edge. Many will have pneumonia from the seasonal flu, so we can just prolong this by putting them on ventilators. Then they will die a month later, and we will say, well, it wasn't the flu since the flu season should have stopped a month earlier. Step number seven. The graphs of numbers tested positive will be exponential in the beginning, but they'll flatten off as the testers reach their max level. At the same time, or after some time rather, the lab technicians will be exhausted and will tend to become sloppy. The pressure for testing will be relentless, the labs will get dirtier and dirtier, and we will get higher and higher false positive rates. Now, Nils Nilsson says, usually the media will be satisfied with reporting just the number of positive tests, But in case anyone should think of checking proportion of positive tests compared to total number of tests, they would get higher numbers each week because of overworked, error-prone lab workers. Eventually, society will run out of hypochondriacs who will come for tests voluntarily, and many will have to will have understood that they should test that should they test positive, they will be put together with really sick people, unprotected, since they all have the same virus. So the curves will flatten and start going down. This brings us to step eight. If you want to destroy the economy during the pandemic, you get a programmer to make a prediction of millions of deaths. Actually, 70 million die every year anyway, so it's really not that difficult if we don't lock down society. We just have to scare them to lock down right before the curve flattens when we're running out of the 5% hypochondriacs. And all the politicians will think they saved their country. Number nine, just for fun, to see how strangely we could make gullible people act, we could invent different strategies for protection. Social distancing can look really funny in a supermarket, and all the original ways of saluting is interesting, leg touching, elbow touching, even if we cough in our elbows now. We could make a lot of money on masks, gloves, and sanitizers too. Number 10, in order to make money on vaccines, we will start testing antibodies. Here, the false positive error rate is even greater. 
so we may easily get 10% with antibodies just from false positives. But on retest, we will statistically get only 1% testing positive if we test the same people. That means that we can claim that we will need many boosters of the vaccine. In order to maximize the profit, we may put something in the vaccine that makes people sick, and then we can cure them with a very expensive drug produced by a company we've already invested in. But to be sure maximum numbers of countries will pay almost any price for the vaccine, we have to wait until they're really desperate. Step 11. We can always count on several waves of the virus, since the common flu and colds come every year and kill hundreds of thousands, like every year, and 3 to 10% of them will test false positive for our virus every time. So we have a fantastic moneymaker for years. Expensive tests, expensive drugs, and expensive vaccines for 7 billion people every year. This brings us to step 12. We can count on doctors being sure that they are right in all they do. They will counter each other in every turn, and since there is no real new disease to cure, the research will run into endless blind alleys. This will prime all doctors for accepting a vaccine. We just have to make sure there is no cheap, effective drug commonly available. If so, we can always pay some doctors to make up some numbers to publish, like the fake negative hydroxychloroquine research in The Lancet. So there it is. 12 steps to create your own pandemic. I know, that's, uh, that's a pretty good slap across the face, right? But I don't think he's wrong with, with a lot of the things he's pointing out here. I'm not saying this is all exactly how it unfolded. But there's enough plausibility. Did it make you just a little bit uncomfortable? And I know it did me. I guess the bigger question is, okay, so, so what could we do differently? There's a, there's a great article, or actually I guess it's a, a quick commentary that was published on LewRockwell.com. I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes as well. This is from Becky Akers one of the most tireless defenders of freedom in our, in our midst. And she references a commentary by the bionic mosquito, who's also a regular contributor to Lou Rockwell, taking to task an economist named John Malden. Now, John Malden was among those urging totalitarianism as an antidote to that oh-so-lethal, oh-so-special flu, COVID-19. And she says, the mosquito does his usual able job. So she says, I hope he'll pardon my tossing in my two cents. Especially when Malden writes, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm sure that we would have made different choices in terms of our response to the disease. And this is where the mosquito takes him to task. Well, how would those different responses include, or what would that, those different responses include? Don't shut down the economy. Don't add trillions in new debt. Don't destroy hundreds of thousands of small businesses. Don't increase the suicide rate. Don't decrease the number of doctor's visits for cancer screenings, heart disease, etc. Nope, none of these. What Malden actually said is, you know, it would have been nice to have a stockpile of N95 masks and other PPE gear. Now, here's where Becky Akers, I think, zeroes in on something that would be even more helpful. She says, let me pursue a different tack. Emergencies and crises are precisely why we have principles. They guide us in new or frightening circumstances when we wonder how to respond. And among the many principles that should have been at the forefront last March were such constitutional ones as unaccountable public health bureaucrats may not order us around. Fair enough? Or how about freedom means each American decides for himself how best to defend his family from this new malady? 
Or how about forcing people to wear masks and anti-social distance and isolate themselves from their relatives in nursing homes is as wrong as forcing them not to? And to secure these rights, not to protect the public health, governments are instituted among men. She says, as more of the damage our rulers inflicted this year becomes terrifyingly clear, Malden is just one of the thousands who will justify it by sighing, Oh, if only we had known then what we know now. She says, Balderdash and baloney. Don't let them get away with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you back to the program. This is a daily exercise in wrong think. Two hours. Well, minus commercials, it actually comes down to about uh, 80 minutes. But, hey, let's not quibble over numbers, shall we? No, maybe we should quibble over numbers. My friend Joe Carey posted something on Twitter earlier today. <clears throat> I was kind of glad to see this. At the same time, I was uh, I was also a little bit surprised. And that was uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi standing up in front of the House and uh, and very clearly condemning looting arson and arson and rioting saying they should be prosecuted that is lawlessness and joe's comment was better 109 days late than never i mean it's, it's taken her and other democratic leaders a long time to acknowledge what's been very painfully obvious to the rest of us these mostly peaceful demonstrations have caused a record-setting $2 billion in damage. That's according to a new report, but the true cost is even higher. And Brad Palumbo, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, does a marvelous job of spelling out some of the costs that that go beyond just the immediate, well, okay, what in dollars, how much uh, private property was actually damaged. Brad Palumbo says, When George Floyd died while in police custody in late May, Most agree his premature death was a tragedy. Yet the discussion on criminal justice reform that emerged in the weeks after Floyd's passing was quickly overshadowed by the rioting, looting, and violence that broke out in major cities like Minneapolis, Seattle, and New York. Dozens of people were killed or injured in the violent unrest. Thousands of businesses and properties, many minority-owned, were looted, torched, or otherwise vandalized. He says, only now are we beginning to realize the full cost of the destruction. New reporting from Axios reveals that the total insured property losses during the George Floyd riots will come in somewhere between $1 to $2 billion. Ouch, those insurance companies are getting ready to take a bath. Now, Brad Palumbo says the U.S. has experienced rioting over racial tensions before. But this report shows that the damage from the latest unrest will far exceed any historical precedent. Axios reports the arson, vandalism, and looting will result in at least $1 billion to $2 billion in paid insurance claims. This will eclipse the record set in Los Angeles in 1992 following the acquittal of the police officers who brutalized Rodney King. 
And by the way, Brad has a, a he includes a, a tweet in which there's a graph from Axios showing how that damage will exceed any period of rioting and unrest. And it's surprising, actually, to see how many different periods of rioting and unrest there have been throughout American history. Well worth uh, getting some historical perspective. Brad Palumbo says, however, there are many reasons this figure, $1 to $2 billion, vastly underestimates the true damage wrought by the looting and violence that has broken out in recent months. For one... The Axios report only measures insured losses. The obvious problem here is that not all the damages were insured. And as he's previously explained, insurance is no panacea for the societal ills imposed by rioting. In other words, those looters who are saying, well, it's okay, man, that's why they have insurance. It's okay for us to do this. This is all paid for. Somebody needs to get themselves some basic economics. Stat. Palumbo says, indeed... 75% of U.S. businesses are underinsured, and about 40% of small businesses have no insurance at all. Their untold millions in losses don't show up in the $2 billion figure. So, too, insurance doesn't account for the personal pain and suffering caused by rioting. For example, what about the more than 15 people who died during the unrest? Their lives and their families' pain don't get counted in any insurance company's budgetary analysis. Nor does the pain, such as those of, the, of, the, of those like the elderly businessman, punched in the face while his store was being ransacked in Kenosha, Wisconsin, manifest itself in total reports on insurance compensation. Moreover, says Brad Palumbo, looking at mere insurance totals fails to factor in the lost sales revenue and the unpaid labor that businesses victimized by rioters face. And that's all without even considering the long-term economic impact rioting has on a community. He says, we must also remember that riots leave a lasting shadow on a city that haunts its economy for decades. The afflicted areas face higher insurance rates, lower property values, higher prices, reduced tax revenue, and decreased economic activity. And he's linking to another article he's written, which shows there's ample research that confirms this. One study of the 1992 Los Angeles riots concluded that not only did the destruction cause a billion dollars in initial property damage, but over time, it led to an economic decline of $3.8 billion in sales activity and at least $125 million in tax revenue. Moreover, a 2005 study examining similar riots in the 1960s found negative, persistent, and economically significant effects of riots on the value of black-owned housing to the degree of a 10% decline in the total value of black-owned property in cities. And seeing as the new rioting, or the new reporting, rather, shows that the George Floyd riots were more destructive than the riots in either of the above periods, Brad Palumbo says we can reasonably expect that the long-term economic consequences will be more severe as well. And this important reality shouldn't be overlooked. In politics, voters and policymakers have a consistent, rather unfortunate tendency to focus on the seen costs of a policy or event rather than the many unseen ones. This is what famed economist Frederick Bastiat described in his essay, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. By the way, Brad links to that essay. It's an easy read. If you take the time to read it, I promise you, you will never look at any other proposed policy the same way again because you will be a better informed citizen and know 
You can't just look at the immediate expected effect. You've got to be wise enough to calculate who else is likely to be affected. And in fact, what are some of the unintended consequences that could arrive, arise from this? Another good follow-up would be the COBRA effect, which is an, an article by uh, James Harrigan and Anthony Davies describing, again, the unintended consequences when we do not consider what is not seen before enacting a policy. Bastiat wrote that when a man is absorbed in the effect which, in, which is seen, let's try that again. When a man absorbed in the effect which is seen has not yet learned to discern those which are not seen, he gives way to fatal habits, not only by inclination, but by calculation. That's how Bastiat put it. And Brad Palumbo concludes, Americans shouldn't fall prey to such fallacious thinking when they consider the total costs that wanton rioting, looting, and violence have imposed on our cities in recent months. The true damage incurred undoubtedly extends far beyond the already steep insurance sticker price that readers see in headlines. Boy, there's some, uh, there's some food for thought. I have to wonder, too. You know, the... I don't, I don't want to sound like, you know, the, the doomer and gloomer here, but I, I don't think that unrest is even close to being over. And, and frankly, like a lot of people, the upcoming election gives me a funny feeling right in the pit of my stomach. Right now we have people who are very literally willing to riot <clears throat> for, for any perceived injustice whatsoever. And, and the funny thing about it is there, there are some injustices that take place. But at this point, the media seems to be egging it on. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush by saying this, but let me ask you this. Is it unreasonable to acknowledge that, uh, why is it the only stories that the media focuses on is when a white cop ends up shooting a black suspect? And by the way, it doesn't even matter if there's any justifiable criteria at play here. Um, there was a Hispanic guy came after a cop. Oh, can't, I can't even remember the, the city this took place in last week. But literally came after the cop with a knife. Police were called to a domestic disturbance. The guy's threatening people with a knife. He came out the door charging full on with a big old kitchen knife at the police officer. And the police officer shot him dead. Had to defend himself. And there were people trying to stir up riots over it. I think about the folks in, in uh, I think it was in Minneapolis, where a suspect, cornered by police, it was a black suspect, turned his gun on himself. There's video. He shoots himself. The police rush in. They start doing CPR. Well, we better riot just in case. Why? Because the narrative is that a black man died and police were there. It's It's pathetic. The same media that's, that's pushing that narrative doesn't ever show you black officers arresting or shooting black offenders. It doesn't show white officers, you know, arresting or shooting white offenders. It's like we're being pushed into more unrest. And the election? Well, <laughs> that's a five-gallon can of gasoline about to be knocked over into a campfire that's already going pretty well. I guess we just get ready. We'll be back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you don't have, uh, if you haven't done this yet, please hop on over to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I have resources there specifically for wrong thinkers like you. And I have uh, some of my favorite news aggregators, some of the people who I think do a marvelous job of pulling together news and information in, in a way that isn't calculated to you know scare the pants off you, but to give you a pretty fair look of what the world around us is doing so we can better understand it, so we can better understand what we can actually do about it. And you'll also find you can subscribe to the podcast if you are so inclined. I'm going to put this out there just, you know, for your consideration. If you find value in the information, the essays, the guests that I bring to you, please consider becoming a donor. And I'm talking, you know, a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month. If you could help out, it's extremely appreciated. And I am I am quite literally standing on my own two feet here. I am not beholden to any corporate uh, uh, employer. I'm not uh, beholden to to anybody, but uh, I'm I'm doing this as as best I can on my own. And every dollar that is donated to to help keep this message going is is treated as part of what I consider a very sacred stewardship to to bring truth and light, rather than just build my brand and and become you know some kind of media icon. I am about having impact. And I appreciate those who help me to, to have that impact in any way possible. Let's talk about back to school. I know that we've had a few weeks now to kind of get our minds around it. It's, it's been interesting. You know, my wife is a, is a public school teacher. My kids, uh, I've got two kids in public school right now. And it's been a very interesting exercise to see what they have faced with all the adjustments, you know, going back and forth and, 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 and just the adaptation and and this is this is cause for some friction too because I'm very much of the attitude that this crisis is being milked for everything that it's worth. It's like uh, I don't I don't know. It's like a light to a moth <clears throat> for people with authoritarian tendencies. It's like they want to remind us. They have to remind us. You need us. And, and there's such slavish devotion right now. There's actually a video that's that's making the rounds of an anti-mask rally that took place in St. George, Utah. Jimmy Kimmel recently featured, featured it on his show. Um, I've seen a, a couple of other places where it's popped up. And it's just for the, for the purpose of just ridicule. How dare they? These stupid people, why, you know, they ought to be forced to bury the COVID dead as punishment for being so stupid. And yet nobody's allowed to think about, to, but what are the practical considerations? You know, why, why are they protesting all of these mandates? And, of course, and there's people, you know, nitpicking the, the Pharisees among us who are, you know, so concerned about, well, why are they protesting the school district? Because it was the governor who ordered, they should all be at the governor's office. Yes, 300 miles away, they should all be taking time off their work and traveling five hours so that they can go protest to the governor who isn't going to listen to him in the first place. Meanwhile, their local educational leaders who are supposed to be accountable are simply marching in lockstep. With what the governor says. The governor says jump. They say, yes, sir. How high? What's funny is there, th- this is, is largely forgotten, but there was, there was a brief moment of, I don't know if I would call it defiance, but autonomy that was expressed by the Washington County School Board when it came to back to school. And they actually said, we are, uh, 
we're going to set aside the mask requirement for now. And somebody from the, the state reached down there and, and took him by the throat and said, oh, yeah, you have to do what we say. And they, they, they fell into line. They rolled over, showed their bellies. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We'll do it. Please don't hurt us. At any rate, it's a big adjustment. Uh, there's a great uh, analysis, too, of Back to School 2020. Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education writes about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you have kids in school or if you've just been paying attention, you will understand parents right now are facing a mixed bag of innovation, regulation, and tyrannical invasions. So here's how Carrie puts it. She says, September feels a lot different this year as the usual back-to-school buzz is tainted with uncertainty. Many schools have reopened for in-person learning with social distancing stipulations, although most larger urban school districts remain remote only for the foreseeable future. Some schools opened and then quickly closed. Pandemic pods continue to sprout as families try to figure out ways to balance learning and working while offering their children much-needed social interaction. More families are choosing independent homeschooling, But that, too, looks unfamiliar this fall with many libraries and museums closed and in-person homeschool classes and activities less abundant. Her point is it's the start of a very strange academic year for everyone. The COVID-19 pandemic has dramatically disrupted every layer of the education sector, from early childhood through higher education. Some of this disruption is good and will hopefully lead to lasting change in expanding families' education options. Some of it's bad such as creeping government control. Some of it's just plain ugly. So here are a few highlights of the good, bad, and ugly in Back to School 2020. She says the, the good is there's less regulation. The pandemic prompted healthcare officials, or I'm sorry, government officials, to loosen regulations in some sectors, notably healthcare, allowing individuals and organizations to more quickly adapt to virus-related circumstances. For instance, some states lifted licensing requirements that prevented healthcare workers licensed in one state from working in another. Now in education, she says, we're seeing similar, similar deregulatory patterns that hopefully will stay in place post-pandemic. In Pennsylvania, part-time program providers like summer camps and sport camps can, can expand their offerings. Previously, these providers were limited in the type and duration of programming they could offer. Similarly, in her home state of Massachusetts, after-school programs can now offer daytime programming and licensed daycare providers can immediately begin providing care to older children. States that loosen such regulatory restrictions will help more families to access care and learning options this fall. But these recent actions expose a much more important question, which is, why did these regulations and restrictions exist in the first place? She says, it seems like common sense that an after-school program should be able to offer daytime programming and that summer camp should be able to offer camps and classes during the other three seasons as well. Parents should applaud these deregulatory actions while being reminded their states should never have imposed them in the first place. Now, the bad side is there is also more regulation. Even as states attempt to reduce regulations in some areas of education, they're adding more regulations in other areas. For instance... Pennsylvania and Massachusetts may have rolled back some of the constraints on education providers, but now they're adding in new layers of regulation specifically for families participating in learning pods. In Pennsylvania, pod families now have to comply with various regulations, including developing a COVID-19 safety plan, an evacuation plan, a fire safety plan, while also completing related state forms. Because it wouldn't be the state without some paperwork, right? Right. 
In Massachusetts, pod families are expected to limit the number of pod participants, ensure certain uh, student-adult ratios, and register their pod with local officials. They can hire a tutor, but pod parents can't get paid. And then there's the ugly side. Hide your Nerf guns. I don't know if you saw the story of a 12-year-old boy in Colorado suspended from school last week for playing with his toy zombie hunter Nerf gun on his couch during remote schooling. What? The teacher saw it and notified the school's vice principal who called the cops. And the police then showed up at the boy's home and told the boy's father that if the child brought a toy gun to school, they could file criminal charges. Now, of course, the boy didn't bring a gun to school. He didn't bring a toy gun or a real gun. He was in his own home playing with what was obviously a plastic Nerf gun. But that didn't change the school's policy towards toy guns. That, my friend, is what totalitarianism looks like right there. Uh, By the way, the Post reports that the school issued the following statement about the incident and the child's suspension. Quote, Safety will always be number one for our students and staff. We follow board policies and safety protocols consistently, whether we are in-person or distant learning. End quote. Yeah, you know, the translation, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. The Borg has spoken. Now, Carrie McDonald says this is a crucial reminder for parents, just because your kids may be learning at home, even if they're enrolled in school, they are fully in the clutches of school authorities, and they're often arbitrary regulations. Nerf gun owners, beware. Holy cow. She says it's just the beginning of what's sure to be a wild season filled with good bad, good news, bad ideas, and ugly revelations about American education. Hopefully the positive changes and trends continue as parents demand more autonomy and freedom from pointless policies. Again, that's Carrie McDonald writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm just, I, I'm sorry, my blood pressure spiked a little bit reading about the story of the kid in, in uh, Colorado. And there's more. You know, there are other stories, too, of, of you know, at least the, the, the upside is a lot of parents have the opportunity now to sit in as their kids are being schooled. So if the teacher's, you know, trying to uh, indoctrinate or otherwise undermine some of the crucial principles that should be guiding a child's life, mom and dad can be privy to that. Some teachers don't really like that, but, uh, you know, look for the silver lining wherever you can. This is The Brian Hyde Show.